Father, we just, just are just so grateful for uh, the relationship that we have you with you. And uh, Lord, how uh, you've set this world up after the curse for there to be difficult times for all of us. And Lord, I don't think there's a person in this room who isn't facing some type of very serious problem or, or Lord, they've just come out of a particular trial. So, Lord, we really need the lesson that you're going to teach us today. And, and that's how uh, we're to have a clear perspective of, of the situation, Lord, the situation that we're in and to see it through your eyes and to see uh, uh, just how uh, loving you are and caring you are. And Lord, that no matter what we're going through or what we're about to go through or what we've been through, you have purposes in all of it. And and Lord, that you're going to be with us through our trials. You're going to strengthen us through our trials. And, and in the end, you're going to establish us through our trials and settle us after our trials. Lord, so we just uh, look forward to what you want to teach us today in your word here in First Peter as we finish this book. So, Lord, I just ask that you teach us by the power of your spirit. Uh, I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to... First Peter, and we'll be in First Peter chapter number five today. We'll actually be finishing the book up. The Lord doesn't return before we finish. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, and what do you think we ought to do after we finish First Peter? Anybody got any ideas? I'm thinking Second Peter. What do y'all think? Yeah, let's let's go to Second Peter, and then we'll do Second Peter, First John, Second John, Third John. Jude, and then we'll go back to Genesis, right? <laughs> Unless y'all want to go to Revelation, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I don't think we're anywhere near the end. Times seem to be just moving right along smoothly. There's no trouble in the world, right? So I don't think Revelation would really have much application. No, it'd have a lot of application. So maybe we do need to go to Revelation. But right for right now, we're in we're in 1 Peter and we're in chapter 5 and we'll, we'll be picking up uh, in verse number 5 today. I don't know if you, I think most of you probably saw the movie, a Pixar movie, Ratatouille. Everybody see that movie? If you saw the movie, you probably remember the line towards the end of the movie uh, when, or the scene towards the end of the movie when this great, the greatest critic in all of Paris, food critic, Anton Ego, comes to uh, Gusto's to write a review and really to just crush them. That's, that's what he has in mind. And so he sits down at the table in the restaurant and the, the waiter comes to take his order and the waiter asks him, uh, do you know... Do you know what you would like to order? And let me read you to you what Ego says. He says, yes, I do. After reading a lot of overheated puffery about your new cook, do you know what I'm craving? A little perspective. That's it. I'd like some fresh, clear, well-seasoned perspective. And by the way, can you suggest a good wine to go with that perspective? You remember that line? I mean, what, what was he, what was he, uh, what did he mean by a fresh, clear, well-seasoned perspective? What he meant by that, what he wanted to see was a clear picture of the situation at Gusteau's. 
the way it really is, not the way it appears to be. Well, what does that have to do with 1 Peter? Well, Peter was writing this book to a group of people who were facing a, a grave situation. They were being persecuted uh, unto death, some of them, because the uh, uh, persecution by Nero had begun in Rome and, and uh, many of the Christians were suffering. And so Peter writes this book to encourage them uh, during these trials and, and to exhort them to have a clear perspective of the situation, a clear view of what was really going on uh, uh, in their uh, particular lives. And, and so he writes this epistle to give them that perspective. And if, if I was wanting to get a clear perspective of how I should live the Christian life, a clear perspective of God, a clear view of the situation, where would I look? Where, where would be the best example uh, for me to look to for a clear perspective of the things of God. I would look to Jesus Christ, wouldn't I? And, and I mean, Jesus Christ set the example for us when he was on this earth. He had, a, I mean, through all the turmoil and trials that he went through, you got to give him credit. He had a clear perspective of what was going on. And if you, were to find, if you were to define the life of Jesus in one word, let me tell you what that would be, that word would be, or you might use another one, but, but you could use this one. And that would be the word submission. Jesus set the example of submission. And he lived in a very difficult situation. I mean, he lived in maybe, he died the most terrible death possibly ever on this earth. And so he set the example for us as he went through his trials. And the best example that he set, or the, I mean the most defining example that he set, was this example of submission. And so what Peter has done in his little letter that he's written to us, he's told us about submission. You remember that. He's told us several things about submission. He's talked to us about submission to the government. Let me, let me ask you something. Did Jesus set an example? Did he submit to the government? I mean, first of all, let me take it back, let me take it back one step. He's, Jesus submitted to his parents. Now think about that for a minute. Who created Mary and Joseph? Jesus did. I mean, I love that line in Mark Lowry's uh, Christmas song, uh, Mary, Did You Know? I mean, that little child you're holding is the great I am. I mean, and I mean, Jesus created Mary and Joseph, and yet he submitted to Mary and Joseph. He created all authority. We're told in, in uh, Romans chapter 13 by Paul that all authority uh, exists through Jesus Christ. And there, no authority exists outside of Jesus Christ. He gives men authority. And yet he, was, he gave all of these men their authority and yet he submitted to that authority and he set the example for us. And then you look at how he submitted to the religious authorities of, of his day. I mean, really they were a bunch of thugs, but he had given them that authority. He had set up the, the Jewish religion and yet they had turned it into something evil, but he still submitted to their authority. And most importantly, 
when we follow the example of Jesus, what do we see? We see him submitting to the authority of God. To the authority of God. I mean, remember what Jesus said? Not my will be done, but your will be done. And that's kind of the pattern that Peter's followed here in 1 Peter as he's talked to us about submission. Because he's told us that we're to submit uh, in, uh, in, to the authorities who are up over us. To every authority, to every governmental authority, we're to be in submission to that authority. He's talked about submission uh, in the workplace. I mean, we're to submit in the workplace. If you're a, a slave, he says, you're to submit to your master. If you have an employer and you're an employee, you're to submit to that employer. And then he talked about submission in the home. And remember what he said about submission in the home? He said, he said, well, Paul says this. I don't know if Peter says it, but I think Peter would have said it. Children are to submit to their parents, but Peter did say that wives are to submit to their husbands. But then he turned around and said, husbands, you're to put your wife's needs above your own needs. And so there's submission in the home. And then he began to talk about submission in the church. And he talked about, remember, the role of the pastor. First of all, he talked about the pastor. And what was his role? Was his role to lord over the church? No, his role was to set the example for the church, to put the church's needs above his own needs. I, as a pastor, as a pastor chap, as a pastor, as all pastors and elders, we're to put the needs of the congregants above our own needs. So then as we come to chapter 5, today's text, verse 5, he's going to talk about your role in the church. I mean, pastors are to submit their needs to the needs of the congregants. What are the congregants to do? And he tells us in, in chapter 5, verse 5, and listen to what he says. He says, likewise, you younger people. Now, he's doing this in the context of elders in the church. You people who are under the elders of the church. You people who don't have the authority the elders have. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to the elders. So you're to submit to the elders. Now, what's he mean when he says submit to the elders? Well, the author of Hebrews says something very similar over in chapter 13. And I, you don't have to turn there, but let me read to you what he says. He says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. And he's talking about church officers. He says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. But the word rule there is really not the best translation. He says it really should be the word lead. So in other words, what he says there in chapter 13 of Hebrews, he says, obey those who lead you and be submissive to their lead. In other words, you're not to, the, the, the job of the pastor is not to order you around to tell you what to do. It's not my job to tell you what job to take, what spouse to marry, uh, where to go on vacation, uh, how much money you're supposed to give. That's not my job. My job is to lead you, to lead you, and you're to follow. And so uh, when he's talking about Submitting to the elders, he's talking about following their example. And that's what Peter says, remember, back in uh, the first part of chapter 5. He said, you're, as elders, you're not lords over those entrusted to you, verse number 3, but being examples to the flock. 
See, my job is not to lord over you. My job is to set an example for you. And if I set a bad example for you, then let me give you a recommendation. You need to go find another church. Because there are a lot of pastors that are leading people right over the cliff. And so if you have a pastor who sets a bad example for you, then you don't follow that pastor. You find a pastor who's a godly man and you follow him. And you can decide that yourself about me. I'm not lifting myself up as a godly man, but if I'm not, you need to go somewhere else. All right. Now, this is why I disagree with those people. And I've heard it. I've heard several at several pastors conferences or from pastors who teach pastors. I've heard this said before that somehow the pastor is to separate himself from the congregation, that somehow he should present himself as some holy other super saint and, and kind of, you know, be hands off with the congregation. I totally disagree with that because I believe the pastor's life should be an open book for everybody to see, for everybody to follow. And that open book should be a good example. And really, there's two things about that open book that you should see in a godly man, a godly elder, a godly pastor, a godly minister. You should see a passion for Jesus Christ, first of all. And then you should see a life in that man that honors God. If his life doesn't honor God, you don't want to follow him. And if he doesn't have a passion for Christ, he's not going to honor God. And so first and foremost, a godly man, a godly minister should have a passion for Jesus Christ. And he should set that example. All right. Now, in the next part of that verse, we're back in verse number five. He makes a blanket statement about submission. Listen to what he says. He says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you, you want a real clear perspective of the role of a Christian? Well, here it is right here. Let me read it again. All of you are to submit one to another. We're all to be submissive. Pastors are submissive to the congregation. The congregants are submissive to the pastor. Everybody, the husbands are submissive to their wives. Wives are submissive to their husbands. We're all to put, what he means by that, we're to all to put each other's needs above our own. Think about Jesus. Isn't that what he did? I mean, did he come here because he wanted to die on a cross for himself? Was there anything in it for him? He had all glory. I mean, yeah, he returned to his glory after the cross, and the Bible speaks of him returning to his glory, but he had that glory before he came here. The cross didn't give him that glory. The cross was a place of shame. And he emptied himself of that glory, and he died on a cross. Why? He did it for me and you. And that's why Paul says in Philippians, we're to esteem others better than ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about some kind of false Humility, where you think, well, this person is a better person than I am. Not that, no, we're to, we're to esteem their needs more important than our needs. That's what he's saying. Because that's, what, that's the example that Jesus set for us. Well, you know, Pastor, I, I, I'm going to tell you what, I'm not submitting to anybody. I, I've gone into marriage counseling. I, you know, don't tell me to submit to that person. Don't tell me I'm not going to submit to that person. I'm going to have it my way. I'm going to do it my way or the highway. Well, let me tell you what you're doing when you do that. 
you are bucking God. You are bucking God. Because look at what it says right here. He quotes here from Proverbs 3.24. God resists the proud. If you're proud, you are bucking God in your pride. If you refuse to submit, you are bucking God. Now let me ask you a question. Who wins when you buck God? God wins. You don't win. You get hurt every single time. So it doesn't pay to buck God. God resists the proud. God calls us all to be submissive one to another. And if we're not submissive and we refuse to be submissive and we demand our rights in every situation, we are bucking God. And God will resist us in everything we do. He will resist us. But look at the other side of this. He gives grace to the humble. You humble yourself before others. And you put others before yourself in your marriage, in your workplace, in your church, if in the government. If you put people above yourself, God gives you grace. What's grace? Grace upon grace, the Bible says. He piles grace upon you. He gives you his, a, a special measure of his Holy Spirit. He gives you peace. He gives you joy. He gives you all sorts of things. He gives you the power to submit. He gives you the grace to get out of a difficult situation you're in. But if you're going to demand your rights, you're going to resist God and you're going to stay right in that situation. And the situation is only going to get worse. Therefore, he says in verse number six, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. I got some good news for you here today. If you're going through a trial, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you are going through a pretty severe trial? You don't have to raise your hand. I mean, if you're not, you're about to go through one or you just got out of one. I can tell you that right now. Let me give you some really good news. He's going to exalt you in due time. He's going to pull you out of that pit you're in in due time. When's due time? When he's ready. That might be a few months. That might be a few weeks. It might be a day. It might be 24 hours. It might be 24 years. But in his time, he is going to exalt you. Therefore, since, hey, you want to be a beneficiary of the grace of God, then humble yourselves and God will exalt you. I mean, one of the pro proper perspectives of God that you need when you go through any trial and we will sing it all day long, but we don't really believe it. And that is that God is mighty. That he is mighty. Listen to what he says. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God is mightier than anyone or anything. He's mightier than your adversity. He's mightier than your adversaries. Much mightier. And the situation, you know, the more hopeless it is, 
the more ready God is to step in with his mighty hand and exalt you in his due time. He has the power to lift you up anytime he gets ready. And I don't care how deep the pit you're in is, he can get you out of that pit when he's ready. I mean, look at Joseph. One day he's in a pit and he's a slave. And the next day he's in Potiphar's house, ruling over Potiphar's house. He had it made. And he stayed there the rest of his life, right? No, he went right back into a pit. He went down into a prison. And it, for 13 years, he's down in that prison. And, and, and it looked hopeless. But the mighty hand of God reached down there and lifted him out of that pit. And he became second in command over all of Egypt, over that entire empire. I mean, I look at David. David was a little shepherd boy. Everybody kind of laughed at David. He had been anointed king, but his brothers laughed at that. And one day he's their errand boy. He's bringing goods and food and cheese and wines to him out on the battlefield. They're still laughing at him. And the next day he strikes down Goliath. And he becomes the greatest hero in the entire world. He's still a hero because of that great event. God exalted him in due time, and he was exalted from then on, right? No. No, Saul chased him, was jealous, and chased him into the woods. Chased him into the woods, and David ran in those woods for years, hiding in caves. And then he finally found a little home down in Ziglag, a little ranch with his man, and he was just minding his own business. And one day he's off on a raid or, or a hunt, and he comes back with his men, and the Malachites have destroyed his home and taken his wife, taken his children, and taken all of his goods. And it seemed David just sat down on the ground, and he wept, and he strengthened himself in the Lord. Remember that? He strengthened himself in the Lord. Do you know what happened the very next day? The very next day, they had the victory. They beat the Amalekites. They got their wives back. They got all their possessions back, plus all the other stuff those people had stolen. They got a great booty. And then he was made king over Israel. The very next day. God can exalt you at any moment. He can lift you out of obscurity at any moment. God can do it when? When does he do it? When he's ready. When he's ready. When he's done the work in you that we're going to see all of it has purpose. You're, you want a clear perspective of your trial, you better believe that your trial has a purpose. And that when God's ready, he's going to pull you out of that pit you're in and he's going to exalt you in due time. Because look at verse number seven. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. How many of you believe God cares for you? How many of you believe that when you're in the darkest pit you can possibly be in, do you still believe God cares for you? That's the right perspective to have when you're in that pit. When things get tough, the wrong perspective is to have your focus on your problem and have a great big pity party. I, I do this sometimes. Oh, woe is me. You ever do that? Oh, I can't believe this. Woe is me. The Lord doesn't love me anymore. And what's Peter say in that difficult situation? You got the wrong perspective. He cast your cares upon him for he cares upon you. What does he mean cast your cares upon him? 
He means to take that big burden you're carrying and then take it off your back and throw it upon the Lord because he loves you. And he's going to exalt you in due time. Quit worrying about it. Throw the burden away. Let the Lord carry the burden for you. That's the right perspective. But to have that perspective, look at verse 8 and 9. Be sober. There's no way if you're drunk all the time, you can have the right perspective of your situation. There's no way. No way. You got to be, and, and, and not only do you have to be sober, you're to be vigilant. And let me tell you why you got to be vigilant. Vigilant in what? Vigilant in your perspective. You got to keep the right perspective. Because you know what the devil runs around doing? He tries to steal you, steal the right perspective from you and give, replace that with the wrong perspective. He tries to get you to think that God hates you. God doesn't love you anymore. That somehow you've lost your salvation. Somehow you've drifted away and now God doesn't want anything to do with you. He doesn't care for you anymore. God cares for you forever if you're his child. Forever. He never stops caring for you. Well, wait a minute. If I'm not doing good, he doesn't care for me. Look, you weren't doing good when he first started caring for you. You think all of a sudden now you're keeping that care for God? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. When the world was condemned, when you were condemned, and he cares for you. I don't care what's going on in your life. He cares for you. So be sober, be vigilant, hang on to that perspective. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Look, you can't be drunk all the time and have the right perspective. Now, I'm going to take that one step further. By drunk here, he's not talking about, by being sober here, he's not talking about just abstaining from alcohol and drugs. He's talking about something much greater here, a much more, something much deeper here. He's talking about being drunk on the things of this world. You can be drunk on alcohol and you can be drunk on TV. You could be drunk on, on uh, alcohol and you can be drunk on Fox News. You can, be, you, you can let anything that takes away from your relationship with God, from your focus on God, makes you not be sober. It, it, it clouds your focus. And so if you want a proper, proper focus, you have to be vigilant in your focus. Over when we do get to the book of Revelation and we get to chapter 18, we will read about the curse and the woe on Babylon, the mystery Babylon. Who's mystery Babylon? I don't, I don't think you can be sure. I'll tell you what, the worse our country gets, the more we kind of fit the bill. Everybody says it's the Catholic Church, but I got to tell you, I got to tell you, you talk about a harlot, somebody, a harlot somebody who's been given a lot and then betrays the person who gives it to them. Chasing after things, harlotries. Man, I'll tell you what, we fit that bill. And one of the condemnations that are placed upon Mystery Babylon is this, that you have made the world drunk with your fornications, with your evil. You've, you've passed your evil all over the world, and you've made the, drunk, the world drunk with all of your evil things. So you could be drunk on evil, 
Any kind of evil, anything that takes you away from God can make you drunk. Any kind of idolatry, uh, any kind of fornication, that uh, takes away your right perspective of God. And that's what the devil wants to happen. Because if he can get you away from God, then, then he's got you. He can devour you. Now, I don't believe he can to utterly destroy a Christian, but he can utterly destroy your witness. He can utterly steal your peace and utterly steal your joy, and he can make you the most miserable of people. If you don't be vigilant. How do we be vigilant? We resist him. We resist those lies. When the devil says that God doesn't love you anymore, we resist that. When the devil says you've lost it now, God's through with you, we resist that. We remain steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings that we're experiencing aren't because God's mad at us, aren't because God doesn't love us anymore. Hey, he's doing something wonderful in our sufferings. And every Christian suffers. That's the point that he makes in the last part of verse number 9. Let me read it again. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings you're experiencing are being experienced by your brothers and sisters in this world. See, the devil wants us isolated. He wants us all alone to feel all alone. Like God doesn't care for us anymore. And you know what we do when we do that? Oh, woe is me. Back to that woe is me party, that pity party. Woe is me. Nobody suffers like I suffer. You ever felt like you're suffering worse than anybody in the world? I have. I'm glad you're honest with that. I have. I felt like, man, I've got it worse than any pastor in the world. I've got it worse than any. I mean, I've got Matt as part of. No, I'm telling you, <laughs> you started that. <laughs> no, I'm. I'm. I mean, we we're so self-centered. We we think that when bad things happen to us, that we're some kind of martyr or something. You know, that it doesn't happen to anybody else. Look around this room. Look at the people that are suffering, suffering great things, greater things than you and I are suffering. There's always somebody that you can find that's, that's, that's suffering tougher things than you're suffering. And when you reach that point where you're suffering the toughest thing on earth, well, you know, I'll look to you and say, you're suffering worse than me. Because none of us are, we're all suffering. And, and so the right perspective says, look, if we're all suffering and we all have trials, then maybe God's not picking on me in some special way. Maybe I'm... I'm suffering just like the rest of us suffer. Maybe God's got grand purposes in my suffering even. Well, pastor, I don't suffer at all. Anybody can raise their hand and say, I don't suffer at all? Well, if you can raise your hand and say that, I promise you, you will. <laughs> Trust me. It's coming. Suffering is coming. But look at verse number 10. But may the God of all grace. You catch that? I love that little word, all. The God of all grace, who called us into his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, 
He will perfect you, establish you, strengthen you, and settle you. You want the right perspective of God during your trial? Let me tell you this. He's not only mighty, he is the God of all grace. He doesn't say some grace, a little grace, a lot of grace. He says he's the God of all grace. All grace. That word grace is synonymous with gifts. God's gifting you. Here's the right perspective. The right perspective is this. Even in your trials, God is gifting you. Maybe especially in your trials, God is gifting you. If you look at the Greek over, uh, I want to say 1 Corinthians, maybe 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul speaks of his, I think it is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he speaks of his thorn in the flesh. And you remember what the Lord told Paul after you prayed three times? My grace is sufficient for you. Well, if you look at how grace applies to the nouns in that passage, it applies to the thorn. In other words, it's almost if the thorn is the grace. My, he, God sees the thorn. Paul saw the thorn as a terrible thing that Satan had brought into his life. God saw the thorn as grace, a gift, a gift. God gives you your trials sometimes, I mean, not always, but as a gift, a gift. You don't see it as a gift. I don't see it as a gift. But he sees it as a gift. A gift. And then he gives you the gift to get through your trials. And then he gives you the gifts that you receive after your trial. And look at those gifts. Look at, look at what, you, what happens when God's grand purpose in your trials. Listen to what he says. After you have suffered a while, he perfects you. Now, I like the fact that it says a while there. I like that. If he said, after you've suffered until the Lord comes back, that wouldn't be so good, would it? But after you've suffered a while, God has an end to every trial you go through. Every trial we go through, God sees the end of that trial. He has a time when he says, that's it. The trial is over. Look at Job, all he went through. And then all of a sudden, God exalted him. He lifted him out of that trial, and it was over. When was it over? When Job was ready? Who was ready? God was ready. When God had done his work in Job and his friends, that's when God was ready. Job was a self-righteous man. He was a righteous man, but he also was a self-righteous man. And God broke him of that self-righteousness. And he perfected him. And he established him, and he strengthened him, and he settled him. When's, how long's a while with the Lord? You know, how long's a while? When he's ready. In due time. Remember that due time? What's due time mean when God's ready? And I, and I see people go through things, and, and, and they learn their lesson really quick, and they're out of the trial really quick, and God does his work really quick. And then with me, it takes years. You might be one of the quick ones. You might be one of the, I remember, I remember Charles Stanley talking about this dark valley he had gone through and how, 
And he was describing the situation, and, and he said it went on and on and on and on and on. I said, golly, that's exactly what I'm going through. And I've been going through that for about five years. And he said it went on and on and on and on for 24 hours. <laughs> I was like, Who, where, how are you so special? But I'm not a 24-hour guy. God has to do my trials a long time before he can do these things in my life. But he says, look at what he does for you in that trial. Look at, the, look at his grand purpose, to perfect you, to perfect you. That word really could be translated complete, to complete you, to make you more complete in Christ, to establish you in your faith. Now, how does a trial establish me in my faith and strengthen me? How does a trial do that? It does that because you know what happens at every trial? Every trial ends. And God takes you through every trial and he exalts you at the end of every trial. He lifts you out of that trial and you, what happens to your faith when God comes through in a trial? Your faith goes way up. I mean, it, go, it, it shoots up. And so your faith is established. It's strengthened. And then what happens, let me tell you what God does next. Once you've gone through the trial and you've been established and completed and, and the, thing, the work's been done that he wants to do in your life and you're strengthened in your faith, you know what he does? He settles you. He settles you in his peace. You know, you want to meet people who have really peace, have a really great peace, the great peace of God? Find somebody who just went through a terrible, terrible trial and they've gone through it and God's come through for them and, he, and he's completed them and he's strengthened their faith. And you know what he's done? He's settled them. He settled them with that peace and joy that passes all understanding. Man, God is so good. I mean, if you're going through something right now, look, get excited. It's going to end soon. May soon for you might be longer than soon for somebody else. You might be the 24 hours soon or the 24 years soon. It depends. But it's going to end. And when it's going to end, the end result is peace and joy that passes understanding. You want the right perspective, too, for your trials? Look at verse number 11. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All the good that happens to you, all the good that happens to you, even your trials and your victories, your peace, your faith, your eternal glory, the eternal glory, think about the, to him be the glory. He said back here, for, but may God, he says back in verse 10, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory. When you're going through a trial, don't ever forget that you've been called to his eternal glory. Don't ever forget that. That'll help sustain you through that trial. What's he mean? You've been called to his eternal glory. Remember what he said back in verse or chapter number one? He talked about how we have an eternal inheritance, eternal life reserved for us in heaven, eternal glory for us reserved in heaven. Look, no matter what you're going through, the end result is your eternal glory. What's your eternal glory? Your eternal glory is when you see Jesus Christ, you will be like Jesus Christ. And so what he's working for you through your trial is making you more like Jesus Christ. He's working on your eternal glory. 
He's not concerned about your earthly glory. He's concerned about, he's concerned about your, he is concerned about your earthly glory. Let me take that back because he will exalt you on this earth in his due time. But he's more concerned about your eternal glory. That's what he's concerned about. But even your eternal glory, do you do anything? Do you earn your victories in life? No, you don't get the victory. The Lord gets the victory. He gets the credit for the victory. Do you earn your glory? No, you don't earn your glory. Your glory is a gift of God. And so he says in verse number 11, to him be the glory and the dominion and power forever and ever. Amen. That's the right perspective. And let me tell you, keep that perspective because whenever you start to find glory in yourself, you're going you're gonna to extend your trial time. You find glory in the Lord. You let, give God the glory. Amen, Peter says. Amen. Things aren't as bad as you think they are, guys. I don't care what you're going through, Peter says. Things aren't as bad as you think they are. God's got a purpose. You're only going to suffer for a while. Then you're going to find peace and joy. Give God the glory when you do. Amen, he says. Then he closes the letter by Sylvanus. Now, wait a minute, Peter. I thought you wrote this letter. You know, you give these critics all sorts of fodder when you do this. These uh, textual critics by Sylvanus. Who was Sylvanus? He was what scholars call an amanuensis. He was a secretary. And that's what he's saying there. The letter was written. The actual Greek was written. And that's one of the things where you might see People say Peter wasn't sophisticated enough in Greek to write First Peter. Well, he used an amanuensis. And so that amanuensis probably interpolated his Greek style into his, into his dictation of the text. And so uh, Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written you briefly, exhorting and testifying. Here's what he, I'm, 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 I can testify to this. I can exhort you in this. This is the true grace of God in which you stand. The true grace of God. You want, you want the right perspective about the Christian life? It's all grace. It's all grace. You don't stand in your good works. You don't stand in your own strength. You stand in the grace of God. And then he says in verse 13, she, the church, who is in Babylon. And he's not talking about Rome here. Obviously, I'm not going to go through that again. But if you go back to the first part of 1 Peter, he kind of he names the churches he's writing to. And if you put Babylon in the center of those churches, you would see those, those names of those cities uh, go clockwise around Babylon and so he's he's I mean around literal Babylon not Rome so he's not talking about Rome as some people want to say Peter went to Rome but in Rome he was crucified upside down he wasn't the first pope she who is in Babylon elect together with you greet you and so does Mark my son in Christ uh, I, not his uh, biological son his son in faith. But now Mark was kin to Peter. He was kin to Peter. And a lot of people believe that Peter actually dictated to Mark the uh, gospel of Mark. 
So they had a close relationship. And then he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Don't get too mushy when you do it. Greet one another with a kiss of love. That's kind of a cultural thing there. And then he says, be settled. Peace. Be settled. I want you all, no matter how difficult things are, peace to you all. Because you're in Jesus Christ. You're in Jesus Christ. And he cares for you. Amen. We finished the book. So, do you want a fresh, clear, well-seasoned perspective of the situation you're in? Your trials, your tribulations? Then remember what you've been taught in this book. God submitted his needs for our needs. We're to submit our needs to others. You do that, you're going to be in good stead with God. He's the God of all grace. And he cares for you and he loves you. And so at some point, your trial is going to end. It's going to end. Now, there'll be another one come soon. But at some point, it's going to end. And keep this perspective. That when we're in our trials, God has a grand purpose for our trials. He's perfecting us. He's strengthening us. He wants to settle us in his peace. And we can't get to that point until we really learn to trust him. So he has to put us through the fire so that we do learn to trust him and be the one that takes us out of the fire. You think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted the Lord after their experience down in Nebuchadnezzar's fire? You better believe they did. And that's the picture of the trial that you're going through. God's with you in it. And if you'll focus on him and look to him, you're going to get through that trial. And when you come out of it, you're going to trust him. And because you trust him, you're going to have peace. So keep believing. Keep believing. Keep your faith in Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ and not on this world. And you're going to make it. You're going to make it. Believe it or not, it might not seem like it now, but you're going to make it. If you've got a clear, fresh, well-seasoned perspective of God. Let me recommend a good wine to go with that. When I was in Italy, they had all sorts of good wines. I didn't taste any of them. But they, I mean, they're cheap. Uh, I don't know why y'all looking at me like that. Never mind, I won't go there. But I don't care if you could find the best wine in the world. Best tasting. They gave you the best feeling in the world. It wouldn't, wouldn't compare to the wine that I'm going to recommend. And that's the wine of the Spirit of God. You get close to God. You put your focus on God. You submit to each other. And you're going to have a filling of the Holy Spirit like you've never experienced before. And you're going to have no problem getting through that trial. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the book of Peter and all you've taught us and, and just for your grace. Lord, you're the God of all grace. And we know that no matter what we are facing, 
Lord, what we're going through at this moment, I know there's some people here going through some really difficult times right now. We know that, Lord, even in those times, you're, especially in those times, you're so near to us. And we can cast our cares upon you. And we can trust you and trust that you have a grand purpose in what we're going through. And that we're going to be better for it in the end. And so we just, we just thank you for all you're doing in our lives. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.